Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least. Hey everybody, welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. On this pod today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Stacy Burnell, and she is an author and also a motivational speaker. She wrote a book called The Things We Don't Talk About. And I was when I read the book and saw the cover, I was like, hey, is there any better guest to have on than someone who has written a book called The Things We Don't Talk About? This is really the impetus for the show, right? It's people coming on the podcast, sharing their story about hard things, having hard conversations. And Stacy has lived a life and she has gone through a lot of things and she put it all out there in her book, talked about all the things she's gone through and all the things she's overcome to get to the place where she is now giving speeches on the TEDx Ogden stage. If you haven't seen it yet, Google it. Stacy Burnell. TEDx Ogden. She gave an incredible, impassioned speech about the things we don't talk about and why it's important that we start to talk about them. So I'm very excited for you guys to listen to this episode. And now's the part of the podcast where I get to tell you a little bit about what I've been thinking about and what I've been learning about. I've been thinking a lot about voting rights recently, specifically the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the Voting Rights Act of 1965 really put in place strong restrictions so that state governments couldn't put practices in place that would disenfranchise black and brown voters. In 2013, the Supreme Court gutted key parts of that Voting Rights Act. Uh, They made basically made it so a state no longer had to go to the federal government before making changes to its voting process. When the Voting Rights Act was uh, voted down, parts of it, the Section 5 that was voted down in 2013 by the Supreme Court, immediately states like Texas moved to start to try to disenfranchise black and brown voters. They did this by targeting uh, voter ID laws, things like that. Uh, in Texas, you can, you can go vote with your concealed carry permit, but you can't with your student ID. Who do you think that targets? Who do you think is more likely to have a concealed carry permit, but not a but not a student ID? So we see this students. These are these are typically Democratic voters, students, people of color. We've seen this happen already in this election in North Carolina in ballots that have already been sent in. 4.7 percent of Black voters' ballots are being rejected, while 1.1 percent of white voters ballots are being rejected. Why is this? It's because they've put in specific, very onerous processes in filling out the ballot so people can make mistakes. Guess what? A lot of people in our black and brown communities are filling out ballots for the first time. Maybe they're, they're, they've voted in some elections and haven't voted in others. They make, mis- they make mistakes on these ballots, and they do this specifically to disenfranchise both Democratic voters and those in our communities of color. In Pennsylvania, they have this process of filling out your voter ballot, um, and we're calling it the naked envelope. So they have an envelope inside an envelope that you have to fill out, and you have to put them together in the right order, and if they're not in the right order, then guess what? Boom! Your ballot gets cast out and doesn't count. So if you, get, if you send in that, that ballot with only one envelope, guess what? That's a naked envelope and your, envelope and your vote does not count. We can go back to 2018. In 2018, Stacey Abrams was running for the governor of Georgia. She was running against Brian Kemp. Guess what? Brian Kemp was the secretary of state, who, which means he's also in charge of the elections. He purged 1.4 million voters from the voter rolls, closed 214 polling locations. Uh, an independent analysis said this led up to 50 or to 84,000 voters that were not able to cast their vote on, on election day. Of those who did cast their vote, 53,000 of those people uh, had their votes thrown out because of some mistake they did filling out their ballot. 80% of those voters were people of color, 70% were black. This is not by mistake. The, the Republicans are doing this on purpose. They make voting difficult. They make it onerous. 
so that they can disenfranchise voters. The more people that turn out, the better chance they have of losing. So guess what? They don't want you to vote. Think about that for a second. In a democracy where our votes determine the elections, they don't want people to vote. They want to make it more difficult. So these are really important things that are taking place every day. So despite all of that, things can be changed for the better in the future, but we got to win this election. So get out there, vote, vote early. Sometimes in these cases, if you where these ballots have been rejected, if you vote early, then these ballots can then, you can then go back, you can track your ballot, go back and make sure that you fill it out a second time accurately. So you can vote early, you can track your ballot, make sure it happens. Um, and so that we can, we can try to make changes so that our voting rights are not under assault. We can get more people out to the polls so that we can live in a democracy where everyone's vote really counts. Well, with that being said, we are now headed to our conversation with Stacy. Look how far we don't came, we made it to the slip to surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a brass. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. Well, Stacy, welcome to the pod. We're super excited to have Yay, you on today. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. Hey, I just finished listening to your book and I have to tell you, what a what an awesome story. What an awesome undertaking to just decide, hey, I'm gonna write a book. And not only am I going to write the book, but I'm going to narrate the book too. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say like, that's got to be really hard. Like I can barely get out like the first two lines of the podcast without like stopping and having to redo it. And like, you just sat down. How, how many sessions did it take you to p- pump out a six hour book? It took me three sessions, three total sessions to get it all done. You spoke for six hours and three sessions, pretty much flawlessly, and you did it in three sessions. Well, it's only flawless because it was well edited by <laughs> my friend Richie T. Stedman. What up, Richie? I mean, yeah. you still had to say all the you still had to say all the words and, and get them out. Pretty I pretty. did. And you know what's funny is like it was my book that I wrote, and now I'm reading it. And yet, even as I was recording it, I'd like, you know, bumble over words or I'd otherwise mess up something or I didn't like the way I said something. And so I'd have to like stop. And, you know, it's just it's just recording. It's just going. And so I'd say, okay, go back to such and such sentence. And then I'd have to start over again so that when he went through to do the editing, he had to, you know, go back and say, all right, here's where she messed up. And she so, man, I feel sorry for him (laughs) because. Well, it turned out, it really did. It really did turn out really good. Well, the title of the book is The Things We Don't Talk About. You know, I was like, this is kind of, this is kind of great for the podcast. I knew I needed, there it is. Stacy's showing us the book on Zoom. We will, we'll post the link to it in the show notes for sure. (laughs) It's got got a wonderful cover. She did a great job. The Things We Don't Talk About. And I was like, you know what? Uh, That's perfect for the podcast. I knew I had to have Stacy on because the podcast is kind of about things we don't talk about, right? Like, I, I know when I had the second person I had on was my friend Jazzy and my friend Jazzy is one of our friends, black woman. And I was like, you know, what, Jazzy, like you've been my friend for a long time. We've never talked about race, right? you know? So what inspired you to write a book all about the things we don't talk about? Well, it really started with kind of the same way that my speaking journey started. And it was that in 2017, I had this opportunity to share some of my story for some coworkers I put together this presentation and I called it failure to finisher. It was, you know, some of the hardships that I've gone through and really how running my first marathon kind of changed my trajectory. But in that, you know, it was that I was getting pretty vulnerable and I was sharing, you know, like the fact that I had placed a baby for adoption when I was a junior in high school and um, just a bunch of other kind of those secrets, those things that we don't openly talk about. And certainly not in a professional setting with our work colleagues. I I shared that story and immediately started getting this really great feedback from people that I had known for a couple of years on a, on a pretty casual level. And, And then they started opening up to me about their own things. And I had a friend that day that was like, you should write a book. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I, but I, I was like, well, okay, maybe why not? So I just, you know, here and there, I would start writing down different stories. And as the stories were coming together, I was like, man, 
like these are just the top like these are things that people usually don't talk about yeah so, i mean yeah. just off the top of my head the things that i don't talk you don't talk about uh or the things we don't talk about in the book you talk about your experience with uh being sexually abused by your father you talk about your story of placing a a, a boy for adoption you talk about race being a filipino white american and experiences with that experiences with gender uh, experiences with divorce experiences with dropping in and out of out of college and overcoming that and boy and, and you kind of you kind of hit it. it it's about that vulnerability and you know you talked about getting this having this experience where you you start to talk about it and suddenly people are like i mean your first experience was was you you told someone you were going to say you were going to talk about your uh you were placing a boy for adoption and your coworker was like no you shouldn't do that yes and then you were like screw you i'm going to do it and you did it and you got all this positive feedback and it's like wow People want someone to be real. They, they they are having their struggles. They may not be the same struggles. And when they hear this powerful, strong woman talking about her struggles, it empowers them as well. Was that your experience? That was absolutely my experience. And I was not expecting it at all. And it has been actually a really cool part of the journey that, again, these were things that, you know, shame keeps us quiet. Shame tells us that we are disconnected from people, that we are less than. And in reality, we're more connected than we realize. And to be that voice, to be the first person to say, I went through XYZ, I had this thing happen to me. And all of a sudden, your circle zooms in on you and they're like, yes, I had that too. Or it might not even be that it's the exact same thing, but anything that people can resonate with and connect to on that really human level. And yeah, even after, you know, when, when I first published my book, I had strangers that would email me and tell me I had abuse in my past, or I also placed a baby or things that didn't even happen to me. But one was that they had struggled with an eating disorder and they found in me that I was a safe space that they could share their own kind of secrets. And man, like what, what an honor and a yeah. privilege to, to have that, to be able to do yeah. that. I love how you talked about shame and how speaking about it, being vulnerable and speaking about it and sharing about it defangs the shame yeah. and is able to take that away. And you speaking about it, I know, is going to take that away for others. That's power. That's power. And that's influence. And that's how you, and I know you're, you're already doing that for people. So, you know, very early on in the book, you talk about this experience of having uh, been sexually abused by your dad. Did you, did you feel shame around that as you were going through that? Yeah, absolutely. Because the first piece of it was that it happened at night and when I was sleeping and when it first started happening, I didn't think it was really happening. And so there was a part of my brain and I couldn't reconcile Interesting. why, you know, like I slept in a room with my sister. I couldn't understand why it was happening. And I didn't at first believe it was happening when I realized that it was real and that I wasn't just having these crazy dreams you know, I thought about telling people, I thought about talking to my sister about it as adults. Now that we're very open about it, she always, she's like, why didn't you ever say anything? And, you know, when my mom ultimately found out a few years later, and that was her first question, why didn't you say anything? Well, first I said, I didn't think you'd believe me as I've gotten older and I've learned about shame and trauma. When you're a young person, when you are a child, and a person of trust, an adult is, is putting you in this position, your brain can't, you can't recognize why, why are they doing this? And so it's because, especially because it was my father, this was a person that I loved and trusted. It had to be something that I was doing wrong, that I did wrong. It had to be something about oh, me because, do wow. you know, like that was, I mean, that was kind of what my brain told me. And so, yeah, I didn't want to tell people because it had to be my fault. Yeah, I, I think that's something that uh, someone that hasn't gone through that can't, can't really relate to. They're like, well, I mean, obviously that wasn't your fault. Well, obviously like this was something that happened to you. Why would you feel shame about it? But having you describe that, you could see particularly in a young mind, that's just, it's really hard. The, you, you talked early in the book about the experience of telling, telling your mother, what were the emotions around that, that, that night? Yeah. And I do want to preface that with, um, and kind of a, connecting that last thought, there are a lot of abuse survivors that when they disclose, 
that they are blamed and they aren't believed. That breaks my heart to imagine people going through that. For me, I was fortunate because what actually happened with our family is that uh, my mom was confronted by her family and they told her, your husband has done all of these things. They had a long list. For example, I have a cousin who's a half brother. So they, my mom found out all of these things that he had been doing for years, for years. And they told her because she was, we lived in South Carolina and her family was in New Jersey and she happened to be there for her younger sister's wedding. And my dad wasn't there. And it was like the first time that my dad had not been on a family trip. And so they sat her down and told her all of this stuff while she was there. And and my dad wasn't there. So when she came home from that trip, I knew like the minute we picked her up from the airport, I knew something was wrong. And at this point I was 12 or 13. So yeah, we got home. She, I could hear her and my dad talking. My sister and I were downstairs in our room and I turned to my sister and I said, I know what's going on. And my sister's like, what do you mean? And I said, I said, did he do it to you? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So my mom came downstairs and like, I knew before she even opened her mouth and she, she had been crying and she said, I need to know if your dad has ever done anything to you. And I was kind of waiting to see what my sister said. And my sister is just dumbfounded. Like, what are you talking about? And my mom looks at me and I'm like, for a split second, I think I thought about not telling her, but I'm like, this is my opportunity. Like this is, so I said, yeah, yeah, he has been coming into my room. He's been, this has been going on for a couple of years. And she just, I'm sure as a, like a mother, I can't even imagine like, yeah, she was, she was sick. She was just, because, you know, there was one night I had, like, I had tried to lock the bedroom door and one night she had come to the door and and was like, why is your door locked? Like, you can't lock your door. It's, It's a fire hazard. And, and I, like, I couldn't tell her, well, I'm trying to keep dad out. You know what I mean? I think it was kind of like starting to come together for her. Yeah. What a nightmare, but she believed me. She knew. She she knew. Yeah, yeah. That uh, the, you at least were able in a situation be able to tell and be believed and be you know I, I'm sure that definitely made that part at least easier. Uh, I mean I'm sure that that process. What were the emotions after that? I, what was it? Relief? Was it? Was it? Were you scared? Were you what? And what happened? And what happened with your with your dad? it was, it was kind of everything. Like I was so relieved to have it off my chest, but I also felt guilt because I could see like, this was, it was killing my mom and it wasn't just, you know, my disclosure, it was every, you know, her whole family's. And then it was just kind of this up in the air, like, well, what now? So that's when she, um, you know, we, we grew up LDS and she went to church leaders because she didn't know what to do. Like, what do you do when you, all this shit is dumped in your lap so you're LDS and you're in South Carolina. And we were in South Carolina. You grew yeah. up in South Carolina, LDS. Yeah. It's a little that's different. A whole, that's the whole story too. <laughs> Growing and, up in so, but, so, but I just wanted to make sure we got the context there. Uh, yeah. So, and she, so she goes to her church leaders. Yes. And uh, their council. And she told them, I mean, everything that I just told you, she told them and they told her that she needed to forgive my father and that if she couldn't forgive him, that she would be in the eyes of the Lord, she would be the bigger sinner. She came right. home and she was like, because I remember thinking, this is it. Like, we're going to split up. We're going to move out. They're going to get divorced. And she came home and was like, I have to work on it. I have to forgive him. And we just are going to keep going to church and we're not going to talk about it. And and she, bless her heart, she tried for a year. She tried for a year. and and, for and a year. Yeah. We were still in that same house under the same oh. roof and they were not sleeping together. I was barely sleeping. You know, it was, oh. we also, I had my older sister and two younger brothers. And she even said, she's like, you know, what if he had done something to your brothers? Like we didn't know and still not hundred percent sure, but yeah, she felt kind of painted into that corner. And, you know, this is not an uncommon experience in the, in the LDS church, as far as protecting abusers. This is a, a story that has been told many other times over and over. There was, as a matter of fact, recently there was a, a man by the name of uh, Sam Young who started a movement called Protect the Children. Yeah. The church leaders, they had a playbook basically when someone would come to them dur- during the situation. Their first playbook was to call not the police, 
but to call the church attorneys. Yep. That was the first call. They called the attorneys to find out uh, what they should do legally, not morally, but legally yeah. what, what they should do. Yeah. We're not trying to just single out the LDS church. We know that abuse is uh, rampant in, in religion and in other places, but certainly this is something that has happened and the, the sort of cover up happens uh, in the LDS church. Sam Young started, you know, also trying to point out about uh, church leaders and these one-on-one interviews that have happened that happen in in the LDS church still today mm-hmm. that I went through as a kid uh, where they ask very explicit questions in these one-on-one interviews uh, you know adult and a, and a young teenager he was trying to stop it trying to put a stop to it because it's a situation right for abuse he actually ended up getting kicked out of the church he ended up yeah. getting excommunicated um, as he started to try to just bring this to the surface so like that was your experience like the 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 church leaders, what, how did that make you feel? I felt very unprotected and I felt swept under the rug. In fact, they had uh, referred my mom to a therapist and it was a guy who was in the ward right after us. So we would see him in between, you know, the changing of, of the guard, you know, at church. So I kind of knew who he was. So it was super uncomfortable for me. So here I am, I'm now, I'm a teenager, I'm a survivor, and they're putting me in this room alone with this man, and he's also a church member. So it felt very, the patriarchy was protecting the predator. Like that's it, that's what it felt like. And I couldn't articulate it that way as a 14 right. year old girl, but looking back, that's, that's, I mean, that was my truth. That's what happened. And I, you know, shortly after that, I, told my mom. And and then, you know, my parents ended up getting divorced um, after that year that she just couldn't handle it anymore. And kind of, you know, at that point, I think she was pretty soured about the church. And so when I said, I'm done, I'm not going anymore. She was, you know, back in the day, you know, before it was like, no, you have to go to church. And, and at that point she was like, all right, <laughs> like, I get it. You're okay. That's cool. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What would you be your advice or, or words to both maybe, you know, our audience is maybe somebody who is, well, maybe someone who has gone through sexual abuse as a, as a child, or it maybe hasn't revealed it or hasn't, or maybe someone who's going through it, or maybe a parent who is, has had a child who has gone through it. What would be some of your advice to, to that audience? Yeah. And there's so many moving pieces. I think first and foremost, when a child discloses. And and so I cite this in my TEDx, but the CDC, their numbers are that it's one in one in three girls and one in seven boys. And I've seen different statistics kind of on different websites, but that's what that's the CDC, just, that's wow. a lot of kids. That's a lot of kids. Awful. And so first we need to be having the conversations. I, I have conversations with my kids. We've had uncomfortable talks and and even you know especially because i have an autistic son we've talked about not only is it not okay for people to touch you but also you can't touch you know you can't touch others you know we Mm -hmm. take it that step further just so they know you know what's Mm -hmm. right and wrong if kids are coming and saying that they you know because sometimes kids don't know they don't know and they're and you know maybe the adult is, is telling that they're grooming them and they're telling them to keep it a secret or they're calling it, you know, it's like a, re, a reward. And so there's, there's a lot of times kids don't know. So if kids are coming with questions or if they're coming with possible allegations, I think the first and foremost is, is we need to believe them. We need to believe what they're saying. And I, it breaks my heart for every story I've heard of survivors saying, my family didn't believe me. They protected the abuser and cut me off. I think I can't even imagine that. So I think that would be the first thing. And then, you know, for survivors listening and believing and getting them into some counseling, I think my, not not from the, not from the creepy guy, not probably from, (laughs) not probably from the, you know, the creepy guy that you can hear him breathing heavily. That was, I mean, I really feel like that added to my trauma. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. Well, yeah, I think those are definitely those are things I hope I hope everyone takes to heart. I'm going to 
keep those conversations going myself. Yeah. Well, you actually are going to complete the trifecta on community spread podcast, mm-hmm. which because we have had an adoptive father on the show talking about his transracial adoption with his son. We've had Rachel Alder on who was a, a black adoptee who was raised uh, by a white family and her parents are in, in Centerville and her experience. And you are one of my favorite people, a birth mom. Yes. 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 <laughs> Tell me about that experience. How, how old were you when you placed your son? And what was that experience like? I was 16 when I found out I was pregnant. And then I was 17 by the time I delivered him. It's funny. I actually had to, I not had to, I actually just finished writing an essay today for an anthology that's coming out in November, but I was the drum major of my marching band and nerd. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Like total nerd. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, so kind of in that regard, like I literally had students who looked up to me. I literally had, you know, the whole marching band that watched me up there leading the band. And um, you're the Mormon girl. I was the Mormon Filipino band. Yeah. I was already a weirdo. Literally like all my friends were (laughs) Baptists and Protestant and whatever, all these other Southern religions. And here I am like this Mormon girl. And they're like, what, what's Mormon? Who's Joseph Smith? And yeah, I already had a lot stacked against me. So yeah, when I found out I was pregnant, I knew pretty quickly that I would be placing him for adoption. I just, you know, at that point I was like, I'm, I'm so pro-life and I would never, you know, that would always be what I would do. You know, told my mom that that was my plan. And she was a nurse and she actually was talking to a coworker one night and telling them that, you know, my daughter got knocked up, you know, whatever. And, and that we were, that I wanted to place for adoption. And she actually, so a couple of the ideas that she had was one, she was like, well, we can use LDS social services. And I said, no way in hell, because I had had that bad experience with the church. And I'm like, no. And then her other suggestion, she had a sister who had always wanted another baby. And she's like, well, oh, we could adopt it out to my sister. And I'm like, that's weird. Like, I don't need, (laughs) you know, my baby is still in the family. So she kind of serendipitously heard about this other coworker. My mom was labor and delivery and this coworker worked on postpartum. She met with her and was talking to her. And this woman's like, yeah, my husband and I have been trying. And, you know, do you think your daughter would want to meet us? And so my mom came home and she told me like, I think I found someone if you want to meet them. So I said, sure. And uh, we, we met, we met this couple and she was Italian and had kind of this darker complexion and he was Irish and he was a doctor and she was a nurse. And And so even just their looks, I'm like, oh, this baby would even look like them. Like they, (laughs) they, you know, had kind of the same um, complexions as me and the birth birth dad. So I, like, I loved them. They So you were able to meet them. You were able to, you you start, did you form a relationship with them? Yeah, they, they would call me like every month and be like, what are you craving this month? And, and so we'd go out to dinner and just, you know, they were just good people. They were just good, kind, loving. And I, I just knew I'm like, I think I joked with them at one point that I wish they would adopt me too, because they were just, you know, this really great couple. And I mean, I don't know how common that, I don't know how common that experience was then. It is common now. This is a common yeah. practice nowadays because a lot of adoptions are open. Like yeah. we've met both of our children's birth parents before, before they place them with us with adoption and form this relationship. And you really do you, even before that baby starts to come, like we've, we formed a relationship with these, these awesome women who are making this choice for us. Yeah. And you had that similar experience then forming a relationship with them. Yeah. In fact, I'm sure you've watched Juno. Yeah. It's a good (laughs) movie. I know. Like I freaking love that movie. I'm like, she was totally cool. I'm like, I wasn't that cool. I was (laughs) So I had all this stuff going on because I'm like in marching band and and trying to, you know, hide the fact that I'm getting bigger. And I I really kind of had this thought that like, I could just get through the school year and like, no one will know, like no one, no one will know that I'm pregnant. Right. I'm just, my shame. you're carrying that shame. You're I know. carrying that shame. I my mean, particularly baggier and baggier. You're carrying that shame. I mean, Growing up in Mormonism, like we're taught, like 
this is the sin next to murder. Like you're just carrying this. You don't want to reveal it. I can't, I just, I can't imagine. Then, so you're just thinking, ah, maybe, maybe I can get, maybe I can get through this. without telling anybody. Yeah. That was really my plan. I was just not going to tell anyone. So really the, the issue became obviously is that I became noticeably pregnant. And so at <laughs> the same time, so I'm a junior, I'm the, you know, this major nerd girl, my sister, who's a year older than me, she was the valedictorian of her graduating class. So she's like the shining star and I'm like this black sheep. Anyway, towards the end of the school year, I walk into a bathroom one day and someone has written that I'm a knocked up hoe. (laughs) And I, there is just something about seeing (laughs) something derogatory written about you in Sharpie on a bathroom stall door. It will change you. It will, it will change you. And I, was like, well, my first thought was like, well, I guess people know. <laughs> <laughs> it's out. I don't have to keep it's the out. secret anymore. Yeah. And, and yeah, it like, I was like, okay, I'm done. Like I'm out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I, so you, 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 you like left school at that point. You tried, you figured out how to graduate early. Is that yes, right? I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. <laughs> because my, my original plan was like, I'm just going to leave and never come back. And you know, I just won't graduate high school. And obviously my mom would have really killed me if I didn't graduate high school. So yeah, I ended up um, signing up for summer school classes and I could only miss two days and still be able to graduate. And he was due, he was actually due at the beginning of July. So smack dab in the middle of summer, I went into labor on a Wednesday night and I wasn't sure I wasn't, I really just thought it was like a bad stomach ache for hours on end. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and my mom was at work. And so I, I came in very timely waves. I'm like, Oh, there's that stomach ache again. Like, (laughs) and like, you would think I would know because my mom would tell me stories all the time. You know, she's a labor and delivery nurse and I kept calling her at work and I'm like, Oh, and she's like, uh, you're calling me like every 10 minutes, like every eight. (laughs) Yeah. You're contracting. And at this point I'm like throwing up. I'm like, I'm in so much pain. And so, yeah, she, um, she called the adoptive couple and um, she got home and poor woman hadn't, you know, she's been working all night and then she had to take me to the hospital. But yeah, the adoptive couple was there before I got there and um, they were just, I mean, it was game time. It was baby time. So they were so excited and they were with me the whole time. So, you know, she was putting wet wash in the, in the delivery room. Yeah. She That's was super cool. feeding me ice chips. And, and oh, like I said, like, I love that couple that. is so lucky. That couple is yeah. they're They're so lucky. Yeah. We got to be in the, in the room for, for Mason's birth. We got there. Like we had to drive for, she was in Boise. We had to drive like six hours and we got there with like 45 minutes to spare. Uh, it was intense, yeah. um, but super lucky, super, that couple's lucky beyond what they, they even probably think about, but really lucky. So that you're that's so awesome that you let them have that experience. Yeah. So tell me, so baby comes, tell me about placement. Tell me about that moment when you, you hand that baby over and let them, and you leave the hospital. Yeah. So I was actually, they, um, they had brought him in when the attorney came. So I was actually holding him in my left arm and they put the paperwork on that tray table and you know scooted it over to me and they're going over the papers and I'm just I'm just crying I'm just like I'm looking at him and I'm looking at the papers and um I I mean it was the most heartbreaking gut-wrenching to be looking at him and signing my name on these papers that I was signing him away and they so then they took him and I'm getting ready to leave the hospital and they, so the adoptive couple is now, they're also getting ready to leave. And so my mom pulls the car up to come get me. And so we're leaving at the same time. And they had him in his little car seat carrier and, and they're like waving and I like driving away. It's like, I mean, that was a piece of my heart. And it was, again, it was them too. It was the relationship I had, I had created with them. And, and now they were going to be gone and the baby was gone. And it was, I mean, it left a gaping hole in my heart. And, uh, it was, it was hard. I, you know, I went home with my mom and, and I had my younger brothers and sisters at home. And I just, my mom and I just laid in bed like the whole weekend and just cried, just cried. And she said, so at the time, the law in South Carolina 
there was, I had a 30 day period that I could rescind my decision. And my mom turned to me at some point in the weekend. And she said, if you change your mind, we can get them back. Like, if you want to get them back, we can get them back. And I was like, I can't do that to them. Like, I can't do that. No matter how much, like it's hurting me. Like I couldn't do that to them. So yeah. Wow. And, then I, and then I went back to school on Monday back, and back I, only missed, on Monday. I only missed my two days, my Thursday and Friday I was back to school. Wow. I I'm so glad that I got that you were able to share that story with us because I have such reverence for that moment, you know, having, having been through that moment myself and, you know, being with a, a, a birth mom and Amelia's birth mom, when we first, you know, this is our first child and she, uh, she, she had, she had the baby, she had signed the paperwork and she handed Amelia to us and gave us a hug and said, take care of my child. And like, you, I cannot, every time I tell the story for one, I cry. And two, I don't have the words for the emotions that were there. We melted. We wept. I've never wept like that in my whole life. We just melted. And, and it was this, the weirdest feeling of watching someone's heart break into a million pieces and your heart being full of joy. Like, and so I, I just, I can't put that into words, but it, it does make me think a lot about, there's this, there's this line, this, this line of thinking when, when we're talking about adoption versus abortion and people are always just like, well, why don't you, why don't you just place your baby for adoption? Somebody who says that's never been through a placement. Mm-hmm. They've, they've never experienced that, that sort of pain and, or witnessed that sort of pain. You know, I'm just really glad that you shared that that story with us and that moment with us because I think people need to to really feel that and and I feel that with you. And in your situation, uh, you know, this was how many years ago? That was in 1994. In 1994, there's really no such thing as open adoption, right? Uh, and, and so, birth uh, the adoptive parents that you've formed a relationship with. Uh, they're just, they're just gone. And your son's gone. Is that how it went? Yeah. And they actually, because he was, he was in the Navy, he was after in the Navy and he had actually gotten orders to move. I think they moved to California first. So now they're across the country and they, they stayed in touch for probably about the first year. They were actually pretty good with sending me pictures and then that's more openness than probably in most adoptions in that time, but still only for a year. Yeah. Only for a year. And then, and I was really grateful for that, you know, like to get, to get letters from them and to hear from them and to see the pictures. And, and then I think after California, I think, um, I know they went to Italy at some point because my, so my mom is still working at the hospital where she had, you know, they had, she had worked with the the mom too. So they kind of had some mutual friends. And so my mom would hear things through the grapevine, like, Oh, you know, now they're here and now they're here. So I knew at one point that they were in Italy and, and I, I, I remember telling them I used to play music for him. I, you know, cause I was a band nerd. And so I would, I would take my little tape player and I would play Mozart and I would play, you know, whatever, all this classical stuff. And at one, one time she wrote a letter and she's like, oh, he seems to love this music. I'm like, that's cause he listened to it in my belly. And when they were, you know, in Italy, I'm like, oh, he's going to be exposed to all this great art and culture and music. And Anyway, but yeah, you know, then it's, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have really um, a way to, we didn't, I don't even think we had email at that point. Like, you know, whenever that came around, but yeah, we just, we just fell out of touch. And did you, did you think about him a lot in the years to come? Did you think about it? Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, so to go back to that, the shame stuff, I, did not associate myself with this idea that I was a good person who had done a selfless thing. I associated myself as a shameful person who had sinned, who had done something wrong. And it was again, one of those things that I wasn't, don't talk about it. And in fact, I started drinking a lot. 
I was very, I mean, I was, I had not really addressed my abuse and the trauma of that. And then gone through this other traumatic event of, you know, placing a, a child for adoption. And I found that I could find at least a little escape from the pain every now and then if I drank three Zimas, I, I started drinking and my sister had gone away to BYU. She had a full ride scholarship to BYU and she came home after her first semester and she saw what a mess I was. And she's like, move to Utah with me. <laughs> and so I, you know, I'm like, I got to get my life back together. And maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe I need to move to Utah and, and go back to church. And I was in Provo. So happy Valley. And man, you want to talk about not fitting in and, <laughs> and knowing, I mean, I was living in, wow. I was living in housing. It was actually BYU approved housing. Not sure how I got there, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, living with five roommates trying to, you know, repent and clean myself up and become worthy again. And you start going back to church at this time. I did. Wow. I wow. Did. I mean, I could see it. I could see it. You're like, okay, this is my way to get, you know, right? I back got, on, yeah, this back, is my get way my out. life back together. Yeah. So I'm going to this BYU ward and they wanted to give me a calling. And I'm like, um, yeah, I don't think that I can have a calling. And so then I had to do the whole like repentance thing and like sitting in front of all the guys, the, anyway, it was super. You had a whole disciplinary council? Yeah. Oh my. Yeah. So uh, for our listeners that don't know what this is, like this is a moment where Stacy, wonderful little, wonderful little Stacy, probably 18 years old at the time, mm -hmm. 19, 18, 19 years old, gets to go in front of how many, how many men was it the whole high council or was it just three, like the bishopric or um, it you was, remember? It was a pretty, pretty big group of guys. Probably the whole high council. So it was like 15 men. <laughs> And she gets to tell her experience about, um, you know, yeah. getting pregnant out of wedlock yeah. and, um, and has to tell, uh, probably t answer all of their questions. And, uh, and at the end, they get to decide whether she can be a member in good standing. Yeah. That's, that's how that process works. Yeah. Yeah. So that didn't really go so well. <laughs> you, you, didn't, you didn't emerge from that with the, the court of love. That's what I, they I call it. You didn't emerge didn't from the court of love, me. feeling a lot of love. <laughs> They didn't make me the Relief Society president. <laughs> it's interesting they wanted you to be the Relief Society president because they saw early on that you had these leadership abilities, yeah. these these leadership, you know, yeah. that, that was that that was in you. Too, they too bad they couldn't see past their nose to yeah. you know let you to let you lead that group of women because they would have been better off for it. <laughs> wow, that's 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 a that's a lot. I know what a trip. <laughs> What a trip. <laughs> You're back in there. We're going to fast forward a lot. We're, one day I'm going to have you back on because you have so, you have so much more. I want, I want you to come back on and tell us about raising and uh, raising an autistic son. Yes. And because that's a population, that's a group that we need people, we need more understanding. And I think you could really bring a lot to that conversation. So we're definitely going to do that again in the future. So you you go through the next years of your life and there's lots of ups and downs, right? Give us the fast forward version to your first marathon. My first marathon? Mar your first marathon. Yes. I'm like, did you say first marriage or first marathon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. Give us the fast forward version to your okay. first marathon. My first marathon. So it actually started in 2008. I was working at Roosters in Layton. And uh, so the Kim and Pete Bouchard, who are wonderful, amazing people in the Ogden community, they own roosters and um, they're big proponents for the Ogden Marathon. So in 2008, they said, hey, do you want to run on a relay team? And the relay team is a five-person team that splits up the 26.2 mile distance. And I was like, hell no. And <laughs> they, anyway, they basically made me. And so I ended up running the first seven miles of the Ogden Marathon in 2008. And I was like, okay, shwoo, yay. Now I never need to run again in my life. And, and then and I got- Just for some context, <laughs> like your life's going, like, like it's going through lots of ups and downs through that period of time before oh, yeah. that, right? Like, oh, I mean, yeah. you're like- you have a, like, you hit a cut, like multiple low points Oh yeah. And, and, and you decided 2008, you run this seven miles and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I run the seven miles. I get on the bus that takes you down to the finish line and I'm standing at that finish line and I'm like, 
holy shit, like these people crossing this finish line just ran 26.2 miles. That drive, that just the drive was long and these people are running it and I'm watching it and I'm seeing their expressions and I'm like, hmm, I want to, I want to do that. I want to feel, I want to feel that, that magic, that pain that they're feeling. And so I started running and I signed up for like a 10 mile race. And then I signed up for my first half marathon. And then I came back in 2009 and, um, I did the whole, you know, the winter training circuit that they do and ran my first marathon. And at that point in time, in 2009, I had gone through my third divorce. I was a three-time college dropout. I was a waitress and bartender. I mean, that was, I was, I had lost custody of my older daughter and that's when my son had gotten diagnosed with autism. So like I was a hot mess, but when I crossed that finish line, like it was a game changer. It was a game changer because it was something that like I had done that. I had done that on my own. No one could take that from me. No one could have done it for me. Like it was, it was mine. And it, it kind of shifted like my whole, what I thought about myself because like, man, if I can do that, like I can do hard things. I know I'm capable of doing hard things. If some listener out there has never run a marathon, I think you like when I had, I ran my first marathon in 2009 as well. My first and only marathon, I'll go back. But uh, there's sort of this idea before you run a marathon that like, I mean, after like you've ran like 10 miles, like every month, it's just, you just keep going. Right. Yeah. Like it's that, like you just, you just keep going and you get to 26. Yeah. And like every mile after that point just gets exponentially harder, exponentially harder. Jesse was on this hop on, hop on, hop off bus, my wife. Um, and she saw me at like mile six and like mile 13. I'm waving, having a good time. And I kid you not, I got to mile nine. I think we were like mile 19 or something. And she's there waving and I couldn't look at her. I was like, I can't look. Or else I'm just going to burst into tears. Like I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain. I, I Jesse was just like, uh oh, he's not looking good. But like, and so I, re- I really relate to that. And I relate to this power that is gained through doing something hard and something that's athletic and through exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I've experienced that myself. And uh, I, I know that power that, that you gained in that moment by like, because I've experienced that pain. I know what that pain feels like. And I know what that coming across that line uh, does for, to someone. And you were able to, the cool thing is though, is you were able to you were able to harness it. I don't think everybody everybody's able to harness it. You were able to harness that power and put it into your life. What did you do with that? Yeah, I think um, timing was everything because at that point it really was kind of the lowest, the lowest that in all my ups and downs that was my lowest. I was like, I got to get myself out of this because at this point I'm a single mom to a special needs child. And there were days I legitimately didn't know how I was putting a roof over his head. And I had been in in relationships and marriages for like ever. And I was like, I need to be on my own and do these hard things on my own. So um, first and foremost, I decided to go back to college and it was going to be my fourth attempt. And I even remember telling my mom, I'm going to Weber State. And my mom was like, I mean, my mom. Like, sure you are. (laughs) He's like, uh, well, we just know that school isn't your forte. And I was like, ouch, but you know, mama, mama knows best. I mean, she was just being honest, but when she threw that gauntlet, I was like, well, now I really gotta, now I really have to finish just to prove my mom wrong. You know, like now it's on, went back to school, um, in 2010 and I graduated in 2013. Um, I was named the graduate of the year for my major and I graduated summa cum laude with 3.94, Oh, um, so, yes. I like, I didn't just do it. Like I did it big. You crushed I, it. I'm in it. Right. That's um, so cool. Yeah. And, and so then it was like, okay, sky's the limit. And, you know, and, and again, with like that crossing that finish line and doing those hard things. And it was like, okay, if you can do this hard thing, what else can you do? And it just kind of, you know, spiraled from there. And now you're up on a stage giving the Ted talk in front of us, by the way, secretly don't tell anyone, but like, that, that, that's pretty cool. Like that may be on my you know goal sheet someday, you know, like yeah. that'd be pretty, that'd be pretty cool. But, yeah. Don't tell anyone that. <laughs> but, uh, are, you, are you editing that out? I'm, I think I'm really, 
I think now you need to manifest that. <laughs> Maybe I do. Maybe I do. But I just think uh, just so cool. Go listen to Stacy's TED Talk. She absolutely crushed it. Even from that time on, I, I think like I, one of the things I really admired about the book is it's not like, oh, I ran a marathon and I went to school and my life was great. And you're, the whole, the rest of it was like, hey, this was still hard. Like this is, and, and it was still just a really hard journey to get to where you are today. This yeah. super powerful badass, as you describe it, total badass. Yeah. I, I just, I love how you harness that power and turned it into something great. And it's just such an awesome story. And I hope every our, anybody that's listening goes out, listen to listen to Stacy's book, the things the things we don't talk about. Find it on Audible, uh, find it on Amazon, read it because um, it was a really awesome and inspiring story. Thank you. Yeah, and if you if you hit me up and ask nicely, I would even send you a signed copy if you want. So oh yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. gonna need one of those. I'm gonna need one of those <laughs> for the bookshelf. So put, I'm hitting you up right now. I'll bring you one neighbors. I'll find you. I will find yes, you. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, you know, I, there's so much to, to learn from, from your story. Uh, and, and I, this, this podcast is really about these personal connections. When you know somebody that down the street, that's gone through lots of hard things uh, and that ha- it has the ability and has overcome them. Uh, you relate to that. It allows us to have sympathy, have empathy for sexual abuse survivors, for, birth moms. We didn't even get into race, gender, uh, divorce, raising an autistic child, but there's, there's so much there that I really think, uh, I really thank you for sharing your story and being on here with us so that we could, uh, share this with our listeners. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. You're awesome. (laughs) Thanks so much. And that's it for the show today. Thanks everybody for hanging in there through that episode. We want to give a special shout out to August the Great, who has uh, done our theme music. We really appreciate it. We love hearing that every week. And also Decker Yazi for our, our artwork. Make sure, if you haven't done so already, you smash that subscribe button and give us a five star rating. Tell a friend about the pod. See you next time. Don't let me get in these facts, I dip. The government supplying the people crack for chip. Brainwashing the folks, every single cat's asleep. Though that Jim Crow side effect trap in a mind state. And it seemed like we had a peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing. And we down on the daily, some kill for the dime sake. I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life. See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig. We don't get to graduate. We get trade up to the league with no second plan. Hoping we got it made into a big. We need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that. If you feel us in your heart, then I'm probably kicking the fat touche. And they talk to your power and shout here. Everybody's dead broke and impoverished, y'all swear. I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes. The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches. They'd rather get some brain and law that broad knowledge. Can't pay back selling me, and we can't afford college. Around here, the stake is always high, so they bang. Screw me, fuck the law. They'd rather leave and die for their gangs. They got nothing to lose, but they sick with hate. Mad at the world, we got a bone to peak with fate. So white privilege. For the kids to the slave master We were left for dead Designed to hit the great faster It's a setup And we ain't meant to survive Look how far we don't came We made it to this land of surprise Though the prophecy says We all been to a bride Spread the word Let it be known The heavens had to survive Right here live in the flesh That's real Americans ever got a ghetto <laughs> Volume 1